Welcome to Teaching Through the Bible with Dr. Ken Sullivan. As a veteran senior pastor, Dr. Sullivan understands the importance of Bible teaching in the spiritual growth and development of God's people. Dr. Sullivan's method of teaching the Bible is to read and carefully explain each chapter and verse in clear and understandable terms so the student of the Bible gains the full understanding of God's Word. Now prepare yourself to learn and grow as Dr. Sullivan teaches through the Bible. Hello and welcome to another session of Teaching Through the Bible. I'm Dr. Kenneth Sullivan. Well, today we're going to be studying in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and I'm reading in the New Living Translation, so let's jump right in. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, verses 1 through 3 in the New Living Translation. When you have something against another Christian, why do you go, uh, why do you file a lawsuit and ask a secular court to decide the matter? instead of taking it to other Christians to decide who is right. Don't you know that someday we Christians are going to judge the world? And since you're going to judge the world, can't you decide these little things among yourselves? Don't you realize that we Christians will judge angels? So you should surely be able to resolve ordinary disagreements here on earth. So here Paul is um, bringing the church, the Corinthian church to task because of the, uh, the disagreements among them. And they were not able to settle these disputes among themselves. The saints at, uh, a, a Corinth were suing each other in the secular courts, uh, when they should have had the wisdom and maturity to be able to mediate and, and settle their own matters right among themselves without going out into the public arena among um, sinners, uh, those who don't know God, and and having them to resolve their, their legal issues. They didn't understand that one day the saints will judge the world. And Paul made that clear to them. You know that at, at, one, at, at some time in the future, Christians are going to be the rulers. Uh, we're going to rule under Christ. And, and Paul drove that, uh, that fact home to them. Because Christians are endowed with the Holy Spirit, uh, we have continuous access to the greatest counsel that exists. If, if Christians would look deep within themselves and, and uh, within ourselves and, and determine to follow the dictates of Scripture and the leading of the Holy Spirit, we should be able to settle any kind of dispute among Christians without going to court. Christians are more qualified to judge matters and settle disputes than, than anyone else on this planet. With God as our counselor and the Bible as our, our law books, uh, we have everything that's necessary to guide us in rendering quality decisions in every dispute among us. Now, uh, every true Christian has a measure of the Holy Spirit residing within them. The Bible, Paul said, and uh, I believe it was Romans, he said, uh, if anyone ha- does not have the Spirit of God, they don't belong to God. So every true Christian has the Spirit of God. And so um, the degree of the Holy Spirit power and influence in the life of a believer actually determines the degree to which he, he or she is willing to submit to the will of God. If we're full of the Holy Spirit, then we're able to submit to God's will and to do things his way. So uh, the more the Holy Spirit's power that is residing in us, uh, the greater the influence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, and the more 
the Holy Spirit controls us. Spirit-filled Christians tend to be more sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit than those Christians whose lives are, are, are nearly void of the Spirit's presence and power. So there are Christians uh, who seem to just have a minimal amount of the Holy Spirit uh, working in them. And uh, of course, we we uh, uh, can build up the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit is influence in, in us uh, through uh, reading the scriptures, humbly reading the scriptures, and through praying and seeking after God. So, Spirit-filled Christian, because they're full of God's power and influence, they tend to be more reliable and, and trustworthy. Um, in the book of Galatians, Paul listed the fruit of the Spirit as love and joy and peace, patient endurance, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. That's in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. So the fruit of the Spirit they're all positive uh, in the life of a Christian. These are the things that, that are displayed, uh, love and joy and peace and, and, and all of these wonderful qualities of the spirit that, uh, that resides in us, goodness and meekness and temperance is self-control, being able to uh, control ourselves and, and endu patient endurance. Now, when a person is full of the Holy Spirit, the spirit or the attributes, the fruit or the attributes of the spirit is exhibited in their character and in their demeanor. The spirit-filled person becomes noted for these characteristics and, and uh, thus establishes a reputation uh, of being well-respected, wise, and a person of integrity. So spirit-filled people tend to establish an honest repute, as it is referred to in the King James Version. In the book of Acts, the first deacons were selected to settle a dispute in the church because they were filled with the spirit and had a reputation of honesty and integrity. In fact, uh, Peter um, um, and the other apostles uh, made that a, a, a qualification. He said, um, seek out among you seven men who are full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom uh, men of honest repute. That means they had a reputation of being uh, honest and having integrity. So uh, the qualifications of leadership, the, uh, is, is the basic one of the basic qualifications of leadership is the fruit of the spirit. So, so a person has to have that wisdom and have to have the uh, being full of the full of the Holy Spirit, full of the Spirit of God, and wisdom and of honest repute. Paul rebuked the saints in Corinth because there seemed to be no one among them who had enough of the Holy Spirit to settle their disputes. Instead, they were filing lawsuits against each other in court in the court of unbelievers. Well, Paul was ashamed of their behavior because they were not sensitive enough to the will of the Spirit to restrain themselves from bringing public shame on the church. Well, Paul informed them that Christians will one day judge the entire world. We will even judge angels. Uh, this probably refers to fallen angels or demons, those who follow Satan in his rebellion. It's possible that Christians may judge the very demons that worked against us and, and brought us so much trouble and hardship and oppression in this world. In the judgment Christians will have the power and the authority 
uh, uh, and the uh, world of demons will be subject to our rulership, or that is at least our judgment. If, if we will judge the world, Paul said we should surely be able to mediate to, to settle disputes among Christians. Our destiny is to rule the new world under Christ as kings and priests. We should begin by submitting to the Holy Spirit and settling disputes among ourselves in a wise and peaceful manner. Now I'm reading verses four through eight. If you have legal disputes about such matters, why do you go to outside judges who are not respected by the church? I'm saying this to shame you. Isn't there anyone in all the church who is wise enough to decide these arguments? But instead, one Christian sues another right in front of unbelievers. To have such lawsuits at all is a real defeat for you. Why not just accept the injustice and leave it at that? Why not let yourselves be cheated? But instead, you yourselves are the ones who do wrong and cheat even your own Christian brothers and sisters. Now, when the church loses its ability to settle disputes, it is because people are in rebellion against the will of the Holy Spirit and the clear teachings of Scripture. Paul said, someone among the disputers should have been willing to make the sacrifice of letting this thing go, letting the other person, just for the sake of peace and the good of the church, uh, just let them win. Uh, and and you, you can't lose, really, when you follow the dictates of God, when you follow the Holy Spirit. It'll come back around again. God will make it up for you. But there seemed to be no one in the whole assembly who had enough of the Holy Spirit and wisdom to settle the matter. It suggested that there were no mature saints in the entire congregation. Paul was saddened that they demonstrated such little concern for the reputation of the church. Not only were they suing each other, some of the saints at Corinth were using the courts to defraud and, and cheat other Christians, uh, other members of the church. And by taking their disputes to the court of unbelievers, the members of the church at Corinth were suggesting that the world system of justice was better and more effective than that of the church. And so that brought shame uh, to the church and disgrace to the church. Paul informed them that it would have been better to just suffer the injustice and, and let themselves be cheated instead of discrediting the church in the way that they were doing. Now I'm reading verses 9 through 11. Don't you know that those who do wrong will have no share in the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin who are idol worshipers, adulterers, male prostitutes, homosexuals, thieves, greedy people, drunkards, abusers, and swindlers. None of these will have a share in the kingdom of God. There was a time when some of you were just like that, but now your sins have been washed away and you've been set apart for God. You've been made right with God because of what the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God have done for you. Now, the Corinthian saints seem to be regressing, going backwards, rather than progressing. They were uh, mistreating, cheating, and defrauding each other in secular courtrooms. 
They were engaging in sexual sins. They had become lifted up in pride and arrogance and were dividing into classes and cliques, referring one leader above another. They were acting like unconverted sinners. By placing these Christians in the same category with adulterers and prostitutes and homosexuals, idol worshipers and thieves and the like, Paul reminded them that, that uh, this was the way that they once lived before they had been washed and set apart. Paul reminded them that you used to live like this, but you've been washed. You've been sanctified. You've been set apart to God's use. So he was reminding them that as Christians, we're responsible to act differently than, than the way we used to. We've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. We've been bought and paid for by his blood. And so we should walk in newness of life. We should walk in righteousness and, and obedience to, to the, uh, uh, to the things of God. So, um, Paul was actually calling the saints back to, to holiness. He, he warned them that people who lived sinful and corrupt lives like the ones that he just mentioned from that list of sinful behavior, he warned them that these people will not inherit the kingdom of God. People who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Uh, to identify ourselves as true Christians worthy of the kingdom of God, we have to live lives that are set apart, lives that prove uh, that we are Christians. Jesus said this, not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. That's Matthew 7, 21 in the New Living Translation. Now, we don't go to heaven because we live right. Um, we live right because we are redeemed. And the fruit of righteousness is the evidence of our redemption. Okay? Uh, so, if people claim to be Christians, but there's no, ch no change in their lives, they don't have any evidence that they're true Christian. The evidence of our faith is our, is our behavior. That's why even John the Baptist, uh, when he was baptizing, even before the Holy Spirit came, he told the Pharisees, bring fruit that proves your repentance. Okay. Uh, why do you come to me? And he called them a, a, a viper snakes. He said, bring fruit that is meat. The King James said meat or, or fit for repentance. Uh, bring a, a, a life that demonstrates that you have repented. Uh, change your ways. Now we can do that through the Holy Spirit. When we repent and we turn to Christ, then he gives us the power to change. But we have to be willing to change as a demonstration of our faith. Paul wanted the Corinthian saints to see the sobering reality of how far they had fallen and that they needed to take the necessary steps to recover themselves immediately. Uh, Paul was also suggesting that the proof of, of true faith in Christ is a changed life. Again, people who continue to live corrupt, immoral lives were not proving that they had faith in Christ, but that they had dead faith. Their faith was dead. The Apostle James says in James 2.17, faith without works is dead. So the Corinthian saints were beginning to, to show forth dead faith. And Paul is calling them to turn back and begin to 
demonstrate their faith by the way that they live their lives. Now I'm, re I'm reading verses 12 through 14. You may say, I'm allowed to do anything, but I reply, not everything is good for you. And even though I am allowed to do anything, I must not become a slave to anything. You say food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. This is true, though someday God will do away with both of them. But our bodies were not made for sexual immorality. They were made for the Lord. And the Lord cares about our bodies. And God will raise our bodies from the dead by his marvelous power, just as he raised our Lord from the dead. All right. So Paul is reminding them, their argument may be, uh, I have the grace to do anything. And Paul is reminding them that we have large grace. We have a lot of freedoms as Christians, <clears throat> but, but we don't want to become uh, bound by anything. Paul knew that some of the Corinthian church members would defend their sinful behavior by saying they had the grace to do what they wanted. But Paul had taught a lot about grace uh, in his epistles and in his personal teaching. He taught about freedom uh, from the bondage of, of religious rituals and, and freedom from the law. And he taught that Christians have a great deal of, of freedom. So he anticipated that they were going to come at him this way. They were going to claim that they have freedom to do anything. Now, we don't have the freedom to violate uh, God's will. Uh, we have a lot of freedoms. And Paul wanted to make it clear that um, that we can't be enslaved. Even those things that we are free to do, those things that don't violate God's will and and, and uh, his commandments, his law, uh, the the the, the law of love, the law of liberty, the things that don't violate that, we cannot become slaves even to things that are allowable. Uh, we want to stay above being addicted to anything. These people began to teach that that God's grace gives a believer the freedom to, to do as he pleases. There was a common belief that uh, what we do with our bodies has no effect on our souls. And Paul challenged this line of reasoning. In his counter-argument, he emphatically pointed out that even if we were allowed to do anything we wanted to do, which we are not, but even if we were, some things are not expedient and appropriate for us. So Paul agreed, again, that as Christians, we're allowed to do many things, okay? But he warned that even those things that we're allowed to do, may enslave us so that uh, if we overindulge in them. So we want to stay above that. We want to stay free to serve God and not be bound by anything. The Corinthians had a common saying to justify overindulgence. Their saying was food is for the stomach and the stomach for food. And with this statement, they were suggesting that uh, indulging their appetite for food and sex was normal and, and that they were only using their bodies as they were meant to be used. And uh, of course, the problem was not the use of food or sex, but the practice of sexual immorality. And Paul used this same saying of theirs to remind them that the day will come when our physical bodies, along with the appetite for physical things, will pass away and be replaced with a 
spiritual body. Uh, it's a body of matter. It'll be a body of flesh and bone, uh, but it won't be susceptible to sin. And uh, we will be as the angels, Jesus said. So since this is the case, we should not become slaves to our physical appetites. Paul associated food with sexual immorality because the two were associated in the minds of the Corinthians. These are both pleasures of the flesh. And because food has uh, no effect upon the spirit, it was assumed by uh, by the some, some people, uh, including some of the Corinthians, that neither did sexual immorality. They didn't believe that sexual immorality had any impact on the, on their spirit. Gluttony and drunkenness and sexual immorality, among other sins, were those things that ensnared many of the Corinthians because of this, uh, because of this line of reasoning. So Paul challenged immoral conduct and, um, uh, here in this passage, he challenged it and throughout uh, most of his letters, he challenged uh, sexual misconduct and, and sexual immorality and, and immorality as a whole. As Christians, we're called to live lives of purity. We do have many freedoms. I'll say that again. I, I want to reiterate that because um, sometimes uh, when, we, when we become Christians, people will try to keep a lot of non-biblical rules and regulations upon us. And Paul was adamantly against that. They'll try to bring us back under the law, the law of Moses. And Paul was adamantly against that. We do have a lot of freedoms, but our freedom ends where immorality begins. We are responsible to live lives above reproach. God cares what, about what we do with our bodies. And he will raise us up from the dead. Paul said that uh, just as he raised Christ from death. When we are reminded that uh, this temporal world will someday end, we should respond to that by living like God said to live. And, uh, one day we'll have a new existence. We'll receive new bodies. Uh, we'll be uh, more like Christ. We'll be able to more easily govern our actions and decisions based upon uh, uh, God's word when we are redeemed. Our spirits have been redeemed, but our bodies will also be redeemed in the day of Jesus Christ when he comes again. He'll give us new bodies that uh, um, that are easy to manage, bodies that, that will delight in doing the will of God. These present fleshly bodies that we live in have not been redeemed. Uh, they are still unregenerate. So we have to um, rule them. We have to govern them. Uh, we have to make them do what is right, because sometimes our bodies will want to lead us away from God. We have to govern them and determine and rule them. Just as Paul said, I rule my body. I, I bring it into subjection to the will of, of God. Now, verses 15 through 16. Don't you realize that your bodies are actually parts of Christ? Should a man take his body, which belongs to Christ, and join it to a prostitute? Never. And don't you know that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one body with her? For the scripture says, the two are united into one. Earlier, Paul referred to the saints as the temple of God. Here, he, he provides an even more personal description. He refers to Christians as parts or members of the body of Christ. 
he then presents the awful picture of someone being taking a, a part of Christ's body and joining it with a prostitute. That's a terrible picture. This was a very relevant subject for the, uh, the Corinthian saints because they were over, uh, there were over a, a thousand, uh, temple prostitutes who served in the temple of, of Aphrodite alone. Just that one temple had over a thousand temple prostitutes and they would, uh, seduce people in to the temple. And of course, people would frequent there because it was common knowledge that you could go there and get your sexual gratification while you worship these idol gods. Uh, so, uh, Corinth was the sexual center of the region. These prostitutes would, would go out into the streets and leave people in. Uh, so it was a terrible place. The Corinthian church existed in the very shadow of sexual immorality. That's why Paul is talking to them so much about sexual immorality. And of course, it goes to all the churches. Uh, even today, uh, we are inundated with uh, sexual image imagery and sexual seduction. So Paul warned them about this. And uh, since Corinth existed right in such a terrible place, the church uh, of Corinth did, uh, um, Paul felt the weight of responsibility to take the time to carefully teach the saints of Corinth to avoid being drawn into pr uh, sexual promiscuity. Sexual sins affect more than just our bodies. It affects us on a deeper spiritual and emotional level. Paul said when two people join sexually, they become one. If a saint and a prostitute are joined sexually, they become one. And, and since they are joined to Christ, they join Christ to the prostitute. Okay. Uh, this was serious. And Paul wanted the Corinthians to know that it was serious and, and to deal with it in their own lives. This is not to suggest that Sexual, sexual immorality is unforgivable. God will forgive any sin, and he does forgive all kinds of sin. Jesus Christ, is, the blood of Jesus Christ comes to cleanse us from all sins. Um, the, uh, if we repent, God will cleanse us from all righteousness. If we turn to him, repent of our sins, uh, God will come in and he will give us strength. He will cleanse us from those sins. However, it's important to note the, the serious nature of this sexual sin. It can be forgiven, but it's a serious sin. And, and I think that uh, in America and all around the world today, we take a, just a very cavalier attitude, a casual attitude about uh, sexual immorality. Sex outside of marriage is immoral. And so God established the, the institution of marriage for us to honor and, and to make uh, sex holy. Sexual union was how God planned and designed designed to initiate the joining of a man and woman for life as husband and wife. A marriage ceremony declares the couple to be one, but it, uh, but it's not until the, the uh, marriage is consummated through sexual, the, the sexual union that the couple actually become one. Okay. So God designed sex as a way of, of bringing a man and a woman together and making them one. And uh, once they join, they are one. God never intended for people to have casual sex. Um, his intent was for the degree of intimacy to be the beginning of, of that life bond, that the, 
the sexual intimacy. It was the beginning of the life bond between a man and a woman. So God made sex pleasurable uh, because it is like a, a celebration uh, of the union. Through this joining, uh, that's man and, and woman together. God designed us for this, this joining of those two lives to become one. And, and out of this holy bond, new life is created. Okay. So God made it holy. God made it pleasurable. There is nothing immoral, unclean about uh, a sexual relationship between a man and his wife. But it is unclean. It is unholy. Uh, if, if the two people are not married, it is an unholy union. But it's not God's intent that every sexual encounter between a husband and wife be for the purpose of creating a child. Uh, God designed sex for pleasure and intimacy uh, and as a, an expression of love between two married people. Today, premarital and extramarital sex is resulting in unwanted pregnancies, abortions, absentee fathers, and too often mothers who are too young and incapable of, of uh, properly caring for children. Babies born out of wedlock come into this world really in trouble and uh, deprived in so many ways. So God intended that two mature, mature people come together, bring their life experience, their wisdom, their knowledge, and their resources together to create a covering for any children that are to be born. Sexual immorality, uh, immorality also carries with it deep regrets, as well as sexually transmitted diseases, which threaten the lives and, and the health of, parent, of the parents and the children. Now, God's plan of marriage before sex is the absolute best plan. And those who are wise will adhere to it, will embrace it. Now I'm reading verses 17 through 20. But the person who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Run away from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Or don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself. For God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. When we become Christians, we are joined with Christ. We are part of his body and part of his spirit. We are like the cells or members of his body. More than merely being attached to Christ, he permeates our whole being. Because Christians are joined to Christ and have been purchased with his blood, we should consider carefully what we do with our bodies. We should remind ourselves of this fact when we're faced with the prospect of engaging in sex before marriage and sexual immorality of any kind. We should resist the temptation to indulge in this sin and, and we should literally run away from it if it's necessary. The story of the life of Joseph provides an example of someone who literally ran from sexual immorality. Although he, he was a young man with normal sex drives uh, when he was seduced by his master's wife, he refused her. The woman continued to hound him day and night, every day, until she caught him alone in the house one day 
and she cornered him and tried to force herself upon him. But Joseph broke away and ran away from the woman, avoiding sinning against God. That's in Genesis chapter 39, verses 7 through 12, if you want to read that. We may not find ourselves in, in uh, a situation where we literally have to run away uh, from the scene, from temptation, but it is possible. A more likely scenario is that we'll find ourselves in an environment where strong sexual temptations are being presented to us. And, and, and we may frequent places where the temptation to commit sexual sin is strong. We may be exposed to pictures and, and videos which present the temptation to sin. These are times when it will be necessary to take steps to remove ourselves from the temptation. Maybe necessary to remove certain channels from our television sets or eliminate the internet uh, uh, service from our computer in our home or to avoid certain people. It's important to put barriers and obstacles up to help us to prevent ourselves from being tempted to sin. Jesus put it this way, and if thy right, if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. That's uh, Matthew chapter 5, uh, verses 9 through uh, 29 through 30 in the King James Version. Jesus warned us about the sin of lusting with the eyes. His statement about preventing ourselves from sinning by plucking out the offending eye or cutting off the offending hand is meant to emphasize the serious, uh, the, the seriousness and the dangerous nature of, uh, of sin, sexual immorality and other sin, and the importance of, of, of taking drastic measures to avoid falling into sin. Putting up barriers to help us avoid certain temptations will often require us to uh, to inconvenience ourselves by giving ourselves the, the advantage over temptation, uh, we will be better able to deal with, with sin. The sobering words of Paul and Jesus should make us aware of how important it is to, to do all we can to avoid falling into sin. Now, we do not have the freedom to indulge in conduct that is displeasing to God. As Christians, we don't have that freedom. We should remind ourselves that that uh, if we engage in sexual immorality, we are dealing, uh, we're defiling God's temple. We should think about the fact that God lives in us, in our bodies, and uh, uh, and and we are engaged with Him. And so, to engage in sexual immorality is to bring Him into the sin. Well, that brings us to the close of First Corinthians chapter six. In our next session, we will study chapter 7. If you're ever in the Indianapolis area, or if you live in this area, I want to invite you to come visit us at New Direction Church, at one of our locations. Uh, our 38th Street campus is located at 5330 East 38th Street, and our North Campus is located at 7701 East 86th Street. Uh, 5330 East 38th Street and 7701 East 86th Street. For service time, visit our website at ndcbetterlife.org. Please join me next week, the next time uh, for, the, for another session of Teaching Through the Bible. We'll 
go through First uh, Corinthians chapter 7, chapter by chapter, verse by verse is how we do it. Uh, our intention is to increase your knowledge and understanding of the Bible. So until next time, may God bless you. Thank you for tuning in to Teaching Through the Bible with Dr. Ken Sullivan. We hope this program has benefited you in your Christian walk. For a free download of this program and to browse Dr. Sullivan's books, videos, and audio titles, visit our website at EmergeCurriculum.com. Please tune into our next teaching session on Vision Stream Network or listen on demand from our podcast.